Today, we are talking with Professor Ellen Helsbert of Digital Inequalities at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome, everyone, to our 37th in our series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental wellbeing service providing round-the-clock mental wellbeing support for those living or working in London. This is Sonia Etetwani, and in this podcast, we'll hear how COVID has highlighted many areas of inequality and how some communities have suffered greatly because of that. Digital inequality has also emerged more clearly as an additional area of inequality. For example, looking at the situation just before COVID, according to the Ofcom Children's Media Use and Attitude Survey, 23% of 5 to 15-year-olds in the poorest households did not have access to both educationally usable devices and broadband. This equals to 524,000 UK children, of which 74,000 are likely studying for GCSEs. When everything went online, some could not. In this podcast, Professor Ellen Helsper describes how we can better understand digital inequalities, strive for technologies that don't amplify them, and consider what is needed for ethical digital inclusion programmes. Over to you, Richard and Ellen. Thank you, Sonia, and thank you, Ellen, for giving us your time today. I'd like to start out by thinking about this term digital inequality, which we're hearing about more and more, and some of the other words that have particularly come to attention, I think, during COVID, terms like digital poverty, digital exclusion, digital skills, digital inclusion. I wonder if you could tell us, Ellen, how you define digital inequality and how you think about some of those other terms. Yeah, I guess my definition of of inequalities, I actually mostly talk about social digital inequalities. I I never separate the two, um, and uh, perhaps that it will become clear why uh, when I give you my definition. But it, it has come out of a long tradition of different ways of looking at this topic. So let me start by the, with the definition, right? It tends to be uh, the systematic inequalities kind of in the opportunities and the ability that people from different backgrounds or different regions have to engage with information and communication technologies, or in fact, deciding not to engage with them and that's kind of a, a more standard definition, although most of the definitions on inequalities emphasize engagement with rather than, uh, you know, also this ability to say, actually, at this point, technologies um, or engaging with this digital world might not be the best for me and my well-being. And it's uh, important for me because... Actually, I'm interested in these digital inequalities or the exclusion from digital spaces or the ability to use digital tools because um, I'm mostly interested in these kinds of outcomes or in terms of people's well-being in everyday life. And for me, the digital itself is not that important, but it's important in terms of how that relates to kind of these beneficial outcomes that people might have in their everyday lives and avoiding negative outcomes that come with the digitization of society and, you know, across all domains of everyday life. So we might think about, you know, economic well-being we might think about you know social cultural well-being and but also in terms of health and uh, you know physical mental well-being and for me um, that's really important because if we think about that it's not just about uh, this is a rapidly changing society right and so this kind of needs to be a transferable thing not just in our lives now um, but also in the future and the reason I said in the beginning that it's social digital inequalities is because I'm not that interested in the whether somebody's included or excluded from that digital space but whether there are systematic inequalities often building on historic inequalities of people who have been disadvantaged in the past and then coming back to your question a little bit um, I talk about inequalities rather than exclusion because exclusion 
often, although I do talk about exclusion from digital spaces, but that is part of the broader inequalities framework because exclusion has this kind of almost like conscious oppression of somebody is excluded by something, somebody else. And sometimes, and the, the important of the systematic thing is that it comes forth out of unequal power relations that already exist in society. So that's the first kind of thing that I would say is that uh, before there was a lot of talk about exclusion, but this is actually a more complicated thing. Often this is invisible. It's not like it's 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 kind of systematic, embedded in other structures that govern our societies. And then the the original term that a lot of people used in this field was uh, the the idea of divides. And that has really, even though it's quite often still used in policy and we see it still in, 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 in especially when we talk about research actually um, in, uh, in the global south or that is focused on access and poverty, we talk about, they have that language of divides which has gone out of fashion because it assumes a kind of you're in or you're out, right? There's people who are on one side of the divide and people who are on the other side of the divide, right? And and then people, have, yeah, quite of, especially people who are researching in this area say like, well, it's not you know, that's not the full story. It's not you're either in or out, but actually you might be out, but still being able to engage with some digital technologies because you have a strong support network around you that can help you out. Um, or you might be in, but don't have the skills or kind of, you know, or have quite low quality access or the content that you need to be able to achieve these beneficial outcomes, the kind of services that you might need is not designed in a way that makes you feel comfortable or that it's accessible to you. So you might be online in that sense, or you might be living in a digital world with access uh, to a lot of technologies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are able to achieve these beneficial outcomes and avoid these negative ones in the same way that other people are because of these kinds of other issues and feel there's a lot of talk about how these can be barriers and that we talk about various types of inequalities that can be cumulative, right? You might not have access or not quality access. And on top of that, you might not, even if you had access, you don't have the skills. And, you know, even if you had the skills and you had the access, there might not be these kinds of services that you need to really be able to participate fully in uh, these increasingly digital societies. So that's a kind of long answer, but it also gives you an overview of the history of kind of this field of research and, uh, and, and policy in a way. It's making huge sense to us. I mean, of course, Good Thinking itself is an online mental health service, really, that was to improve Londoners' access to, to mental health support. But particularly as COVID struck, we were painfully aware, really, that those two issues of access and skills were becoming barriers for someone who might want to socially be connected or might want to be accessing other health services, let alone information. And so we've become hugely interested in digital inclusion, which is, I think, our way of trying to describe programs that would improve access, so a better device uh, or internet connection, and then thinking about the sort of skills that would enable them to to make use of those opportunities. So in that sense, it does, to, to my mind, think very much with ideas of equality, where we're advancing equality through creating opportunities rather than trying to bridge a divide in the, in the way that you describe, Ellen. So that's hugely helpful. You're describing digital inequalities or social digital inequalities very much in relation to historical ones, and we'll all be familiar with issues like like finance, housing, etc., that that can make a huge difference to someone's life chances. How did you get to be interested in in the digital 
aspect of inequalities? Yeah, I guess I've always had an interest in inequality and vulnerability in a way, but I've also always had an interest. Um, I actually studied media psychology when I was uh, kind of an undergraduate and a graduate. I got a master's in that. I've also studied film and television sciences. So I've actually always been interested in these kind of the intersections between the kind of how media in general and then, you know, increasingly these digital technologies that became part of that space kind of allowed individuals uh, from different backgrounds to express themselves and feel part of wider society. So, um, and, and then in particular, how th there might be certain barriers or kind of how this might be more problematic for people who come from uh, more vulnerable backgrounds, you know, who've t traditionally not had positions of power, for example, whether that's economic power or participatory power. And so that's a kind of really, you know, I, I did a lot of work on, on things like soaps and telenovelas and how the problems and the issues that get represented there and um, the kinds of people and the experiences that get represented in, uh, in traditionally when I was studying this uh, television um, made certain people able to participate more or feel, you know, that they're lives were valued and their ideas were valued and and so that that's kind of where it came out of and then I, I I worked in many parts of the world and when the the digital really became uh, or started gathering steam uh, was when I was living in the in Latin America in Chile and uh, I remember doing this kind of with the rise of broadband and broadband was coming up and there was a lot of talk within the like the tech industry it was really about infrastructure and rolling out access and things like that and I was working at that time in the kind of media space uh, because obviously broadband comes with content and comes with services and comes with, so there was a lot of tech talk around it. There was a lot of, uh, you know, telecoms uh, people talking about this, which really understand wires, but not really about what, you know, these wires might bring and the problems that might bring if you just roll that out without more comprehensive policies of thinking about the content and what it might do to different people and, you know, who might be able to take up these opportunities. Because this is one of the reasons why inclusion sometimes is problematized because inclusion kind of has this focus on, you know, the people who are better off trying to convince the people who are less well off in, in societies that they need to catch up and they need to, you know, that they're being left behind and there's programs and interventions. It has a little bit of a top-down feel to it. While inequalities recognize more like the way in which these things express themselves in everyday life is and actually, you know, in our families, in the neighborhoods that we live in. And so we saw that in terms of like, traditionally media and how people are able to learn about and participate in society through the content that media provided is very much determined by where you grow up, who is around you, the resources that you have, you know, your ability to process information and, and concentrate on content or to interpret it in critical ways and uh, understand what it means for you. Um, it's very much determined by the people you have around you and by the kind of physical environments you have around you. And we see the same thing happening now uh, with digital technologies that, you know, that you're the, like the way in which you are able to take up these opportunities that might be provided by kind of others um, is um, is very much determined, um, yes, by the resources that you have as an individual, but more than anything by the circumstances in which you live and grow up and the values and the attitudes to which technology, as well as your kind of individual resources in terms of the skills and the type of access you have as an individual. So that's kind of where, you know, it, it wasn't all of a sudden there was the digital. The digital was merged with this space or emerged out of a space in which these de debates were g going on for quite a long time. 
One of the things I think you've, you've sort of highlighted there that I'd be interested in hearing a few more thoughts about is that a digital inclusion program that might be about trying to give greater opportunities in the digital space to uh, communities that have had less opportunity. It sounds as if you think there's a risk of, I don't know whether this is the right word, but a sort of colonization of those communities and kind of assimilating them into this dominant digital culture that may exist in, in other places where power and economic opportunities are driving those agendas. Is this right? Are we going to see communities that won't want to engage with digital because they will feel it's assimilating and effectively erasing their choice and their culture? This is the debate around what is the digital. And I think uh, the important starting point is here is that we have to, uh, like the general awareness needs to be that the technologies and digital infrastructures and content that is available through these uh, platforms or services, they don't come out of nowhere. It's not like they've fallen from the sky, right? Uh, all <laughs> yeah. these things are all these things are designed um, by humans within existing societies, which has long histories of these kinds of unequal distribution of resources and it's still the case and in the tech sector in particular um, are the people also who are designing services often come from very very different backgrounds than the people who um, use the services or who must reliant on these services uh, or who could benefit the most let's say in some ways uh, I uh, you know I've just published this book the digital disconnect and I talk about this principle of the Pareto principle which is something that is very commonly known in studies of inequalities where it's often the people who, like kind of let's say, the 20% in this case, um, who is least likely to be online, are the heaviest users of things like health services or social services or, you know, um, who could benefit the most from having access to education that they didn't have before. The problem is, is that if you introduce these kind of technologies designed in ways that represent these experiences and life worlds of people uh, who are very different from those people who could benefit the most, that they feel alienated when they come in and that, you know, it feels like it's it's forced upon them. It's not something that will be a benefit to them. And then you get this kind of reluctant use in, in the definition that I have of inequalities. That's why I emphasize this idea of the, also the ability to decide not to use technologies if they are actually not going to lead to an increase in well-being or if they're going to lead to you suffering from uh, kind of abuse uh, of others or harassment. And it's really important that like in some of the research that we're doing now, we see that while there's a lot of work on inequalities in terms of giving people these kinds of access and and technical ability to use technologies, that actually where there's real inequalities emerges is in this idea that we could have like, you know, a digital holiday, like we could take time off from technologies because especially vulnerable groups who are forced by their circumstances to give up their personal data to to use technologies because if they don't they might lose their job because their boss can't monitor them and the boss will require that or they might not get you know their their benefits or um, you know the healthcare that they need because they are much more monitored in a kind of micro way than the people who have the kind of privilege of working in jobs where you know like you know, they have the kind of trust and the confidence that um, they can do it and they just have historically been less modified. So this idea of that we can control our privacy, control our tech, uh, use of technology, decide that actually in this case, you know, maybe I won't give my data or I won't use this tech because it's not so good for my well-being, psychological or otherwise, is, is becoming increasingly unequally distributed because a lot of people don't have a choice anymore with the digitization of society. So I think that's one side of it. 
that um, choice and agency is unequally distributed in this space. And the other side of it is that um, what I was talking about before is that often these services are not designed um, you know, there's a lot of talk about user experience, UX design, and, you know, uh, but, but it's very rarely starts uh, the other way around. There's a technology that we're going to roll out or a service that we're going to roll out and now have some people from some groups try to use this platform that we've already created rather than starting from the other way. What are the real needs and the gaps that people see in their everyday lives? And how can we design technologies around that? You know, just like a interesting if you see startups and the tech culture the kind of apps that are designed often come from you know the kind of world in which people you know can work from home and uh you know or you know might have the kinds of resources to get all kinds of expensive deliveries or who might take taxis and uh, you know we have all these services that are designed in a world for that's not made for people who have three jobs and have to manage, you know, uh, kind of living with uh, five people in a, in a household and taking turns on the bedroom and the bathroom. That's really a risk of colonization, if you want to call it that, but more colonization of a mindset, sorry, or a life world. Um, and that's not like to say that there's some evil conspiracy of some people who are trying to do this, but this is logical when we design things. When we, you know, we design it in in our own image, you know, <laughs> in a way we're all a little bit like, uh, I guess, uh, gods in that we design things that we feel comfortable in and that are relevant yeah. to us. Yeah. That's hugely helpful because I, I really like the emphasis on choice and agency when thinking about digital inclusion. But I, I guess we're familiar with, say, the work of Virginia Eubanks on automating inequality, the way algorithms can have bias built within them that reinforces inequalities. But if I'm understanding, Ellen, the whole sector is at risk of reinforcing uh, traditional hierarchies and inequalities right from the moment someone has an idea for an app or a device or, or something so yeah. hugely interesting. And, and and then, of course, the opportunities for that work do depend on your, your situation. I would, can I, if I can add something there, I think, you know, because it's it's uh, obviously very important in the tech sector is very, if, like in terms of diversity, is very problematic. And other, other scholars have done much, much more work on that than I, than I have. But um, what is also really important in this space is that in a way we're all complicit. And, you know, I mentioned the book before, and this is kind of where I end the book on, is that because we're all creators of this digital world and you mentioned algorithms and these are going to play a very important role in the future more than devices or platforms but you know technologies that are in a way invisible right they're embedded in our devices um, we are going to not have to like this idea of using technology and that we have to learn how to use something by pressing buttons and understanding menus it's probably going to be less important in the sense that there's a lot of thinking that's going to be done for us but what happens is that it, we are creating uh, this digital world through our actions and interactions in these digital spaces. And this is quite a different paradigm from what we've seen before, because, you know, if you think a physical space, if I open a door and then, you know, uh, because that's the door that takes me where I want to go, then that doesn't have an effect on what that door will look like or that room will look like for the next person that comes in after me. Right. In the digital space, this is very, very different because dominant users of technology keep opening the same door or are more likely to like a certain door or, you know, something like that. That door will become bigger. Um, you know, it will be more easy to open. It will be presented to everybody who comes after them into that space. Well, uh, another door that might lead to somewhere else. 
that could also be relevant becomes increasingly less prominent, right? So it's not just the kind of, when we talk about digital skills, yes, it's about programming and creating apps and platforms. It's also about quite, you know, uh, more basic skills on how to use technology that is in a wider population. But what we uh, kind of in terms of the vision for the future or the things that are going to become really important is our awareness of the fact that every kind of click and every action that we take is going to impact other people, not just our own kind of, you know, this kind of personalization of, of search engines is talked about a lot. But Actually, it's it's kind of collectivization of our experiences. If we are the more dominant users, then that is kind of, you know, going to have an impact on others who are not like us. And, and, and especially when we think about things like content creation or, or, or services, the way a lot of tech companies are organized is that, you know, they want to promote content that's popular because then they, they will get more traffic and, and things like that. But it does mean that content and services that comply more with the kind of people that in general have had societies, in this case also digital societies, kind of more shaped according to their experiences, those will be pushed to the fore because those will be the more acceptable normative kinds of um, kind of experiences, which automatically means that people who have different experiences or produce content that might not be what others expect or what you know they are familiar with, they, they become... Um, both more invisible through the technical route, but also through people seeing like nobody is reacting to what I'm doing or they're reacting negatively. And and what we see then, there's a lot of talk about echo chambers and filter bubbles, you know, with misinformation. And what actually the emerging research is showing is that this idea of echo chambers and filter bubbles is much more problematic for actually elites or people who are part of this kind of more dominant because they are less and less likely to see other points of view because these other points of view kind of go into these safe spaces, right? If you have been harassed or bullied or feel unrepresented or people are reacting in ways to the content or the kind of your experience that you're sharing in ways that are not very encouraging, like you go to a space where you can share that with people who are like you and who understand and, and do things like that. But that also means that those experiences are taking off out outside of these public spaces. And the people obviously who go into these safe spaces will be, still be exposed to other types of content. And then, you know, like it's really hard to start thinking about the collective experience of, of, of society if we have, you know, kind of segregation in, in online spaces. So this is, I think, um, you know, it's not just about these programmers and the elite tech who are at the, you know, the kind of designing this digital world in a more technological and infrastructure sense. And it's not just about, you know, basic skills on how to use the devices, but it's actually this kind of more critical skills that, you know, that make us aware of how we in our in our everyday lives are creating content and creating this digital world collectively and how that impacts others as well. You know, so you can't uh, put the blame somewhere else in the way. <laughs> like, I think we're all, we all have a role to play to change this, you know. Despite the fact that individually we can't control those algorithms that will be presenting us with content that may be more aligned with what we agree with already, but actually our individual struggle to keep an open mind, to be interested in the points of view of others, does really bring in that 
social valuing of diversity and and if we don't hold on to that in terms of our uh, human qualities then there are all sorts of risks in terms of the way the technologies will evolve and where that might lead us yeah and it's about us you know the, the algorithms are designed in a way you know algorithms are designed to achieve certain outcomes in this case promoting popular uh, content uh, you know getting as many clicks as they can and if uh, if as a society you say like that's not the kind of digital future, let's say that we want, um, then the algorithms can be designed to, to have other outcomes that are the desired outcomes. And that's the pressure that you can do. And that's why it's really important to have organizations, you know, this is not something some individual can necessarily do, right? We have organizations that are kind of working with vulnerable groups of various kinds, or who have been standing up for human rights issues and, and things like that. And, and these organizations really need to get to grips with the way in which this digital world is kind of amplifying and making their world work a lot harder if it's not incorporated into kind of their initiatives or programs or activism or, you know, if, if government services need to understand this in the same way, how if you ignore the digital part, uh, that then, you know, your policies are not going to be as effective or your interventions are not going to be as effective. So I think that's, a you know, it's a it's a kind of complex problem in which multiple stakeholders are involved and, you know, accountability in terms of these outcomes um, that, you know, algorithms produced and th produce and things like that um, is, is very important, you know, and we have that's coming back to the agency principle. This is where we have agency, you know, it's not like tech uh, companies can only design one kind of algorithm. Um, if as a society, we demand different algorithms <laughs> with different outcomes, that is the power we have. That, that for me raises a really interesting question, though, about digital inclusion programs, which I guess suggests that if we then are working with those groups that actually if we can broaden the representation that is there online, so those that are marginalized at the moment through social digital inequalities, th there is value at least at that level is there in trying to make sure everyone has that choice because the more diverse groups are interacting with those algorithms, perhaps potentially the healthier the algorithm. Yeah, um, I mean, it also depends on how it's not just about quantity, it's about quality of the interaction, right? But I think the important point here is, you know, I'm definitely not advocating for saying, like, let's not do interventions or programs that work in getting people, you know, a high quality types of access and, and teaching them, kind of, you know, the providing skills training, because they are essential. Uh, without access and without basic skills or without the kinds of platforms that, you know, provide services to people um, who really need them or, or uh, who, you know, general content provision platforms, you know, actually most of people now access social media, but, you know, we see that there the content is quite unequally distributed. Um, there is a little bit of a risk to think, look at it in a quantitative sense and getting more people to use these platforms because, Things like uh, platforms that are very widely used, things like YouTube, uh, vloggers, and um, you know things like Facebook or Instagram or things like that. We can see that there, even though there's a quantity of production, the things that get presented to people so are still quite normative in a way, right? So while these things are essential, to give you an example of uh, um, vlogging and the most popular YouTubers, let's say, um, you know, let's in the kind of 40, you know, most popular YouTubers, there might be uh, kind of 34 that are men, yeah? Uh, who, who represent a very wide range, you know, from sports to uh, science, health, all kinds of things that they might talk about. Then there's the six, the six women that might be part of that 
most sadly, if we think about it, like in a way, stereotypically, that tend to be beauty vloggers still. And so I think all of these things are essential without people engaging and being on there. This is never going to happen, but it's not enough. So as, as you know, as we go along and things become more social culturally related to what things we value or who voices are heard or whose experiences are represented, the more social the solutions become and the less technical, right? If we talk about very simple things like online banking, you know, it's not that simple for many people, but online banking, right? We know that this is about providing kind of financial literacy and good apps and that the main explanatory kind of factor in this is, is poverty, like economic poverty or access to employment and education and financial services. We know that the explanation for that is quite quite clearly a lack of economic resources. But when we come to things that um, are more uh, social cultural and, and interesting in the space that you're working with, healthcare is actually very uh, kind of, you know, while it is about sometimes seems about providing medical advice on, on medicine that might work or treatments that might work or not, there's actually very different ideas of, of well-being and what, you know, like um, uh, there's much more uh, social cultural kind of understanding of health and well-being, especially when it comes to mental health, that um, these the solutions often not don't become like, how can we design a better technology, but how can we create, you know, a better understanding of, of why certain people engage in different ways with healthcare and the relationships they have with others in their everyday lives uh, kind of might influence how they go online because the digital is not separate from that. You know, I think if we think about our own experiences, we talk about what we've seen online or what we've had online or how, you know, we hear stories about people who've had bad experiences. And so the more we come to spaces that are, are complex, that involve human interactions through technology, that involve, you know, engagement with a wide variety of contents that provides ideas, the more uh, important it is to really understand how in the context of people's everyday lives this plays out, uh, rather than thinking we can design a better app or we can need to get more people on the platform. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's really helpful. It tallies with so many trends during COVID, not least vaccine hesitancy, where I think we're learning in the health space that there was a divide before where there was that top-down sort of pressure to perhaps encourage people to make healthy choices, etc. that actually through co-creating content, and certainly in terms of mental health with the diverse communities of London, I think we're learning that we can get a, a better participation, greater sense of trust, which is so fundamental to delivering healthcare. The other thought, thinking also back to last year, where I guess there were lots of questions about whether initiatives like Black Lives Matters was having an impact in terms of media. But I remember reading that actually that did have an impact on soaps in terms of the, the degree of representation of Black Lives in, in those soaps. And it was felt to be a very positive development. So it sounds to me as if one of our asks, you know, we're often thinking about online harms, but is actually thinking about policies that we're not just leaving it to the technology and the, and the business model to decide what is represented on a platform as huge as YouTube, but building in that diversity in some way, having some uh, initiative about including a, a range of individuals or communities would be a really helpful development in the digital world. 
Yeah, and having that dialogue, you know, I think one of the things that I um, that I often experience when I go and talk to policymakers or, or companies or organizations um, about the kinds of work that we're doing and how it might be useful for them is that there's often very little exposure to experience of people, you know, in the same platform, in the same space, how even sometimes the same action or the same reaction can have very different consequences depending on where you come from. We talk about emotional vulnerability or young people, in this case, uh, some of the research that we've been doing, we see that increased kind of technical skills for young people who come from uh, problematic situ home situations and who have might, might have lots of emotional problems, that actually increasing their technical skills uh, without thinking, understanding that kind of emotional uh, context uh, uh, leads them to be the most at risk of having negative outcomes in terms of their kind of, you know, both education, but also in terms of their mental health and well-being. And while the effect is the opposite for people who don't have these kind of emotional problems of problematic home situations, that actually increasing skills leads to less negative outcomes because, and it's not necessarily that they have such different, you know, they don't use different platforms of technologies, but they are online and the same comment or the same kind of experience can uh, really be detrimental for somebody who comes from a more negative background than for somebody you know who comes from you know who can then you know shut off the device or or like can look around them and you know has a kind of sense of self-confidence and well-being so and that's the dialogue that we need to have and that's i think the, the great thing about things like you know me too and and black lives matter is that they are saying like this is not the same even though we walk the same streets offline in the case but or we are in the same space online it's actually a very different experience and it's kind of eye-opening and i think in education another space that i've done a, quite a bit of work with now is uh, like this is one of the eye-opening things for a lot of teachers and educators due to the pandemic people have to start working from home is to be really confronted with the very different learning circumstances that young people had at home and you know that that all of a sudden kind of and there was a kind of an intellectual cognitive understanding of, of that there were differences and, and schools and teachers have been you know grappling with this for before the pandemic and before digital technologies but this was really an eye-opener to see that some kids you know yes they had a tablet but they had to go and sit in the bathtub in the bathroom because that was the only space that they could you know have uh, to think about these things so i think that kind of awareness creation the sharing of experiences is like also coming back to what i was talking about before makes us like makes us think back to our own behavior are the way in which we have designed our you know interactions with others or this you know if we design technological service and think like oh gosh i didn't realize that this might be the impact on some people who come from very different backgrounds and you mentioned trust and i'll you know that's one last example i will give in this space and uh, work that we did with the princess trust here in the uk with young people who are not in education, employment or training. The biggest difference that we found was that these young people who come from these most disadvantaged backgrounds in the UK was in actual trust in other people and trust in people online, you know, and if they would be rejected for a job, for example, when they applied, they would think it's a personal rejection. Somebody's looked at my CV and said like, oh, this person never, you know, like, well, somebody from a more privileged background would say like, oh, well, you know, there's probably a million other people and maybe it was not the right time in the right place or it's the system, right? And they would not think that this was kind of built on the kind of a general 
a lack of trust in, in them as individuals or them as persons. And so they much rather be rejected in their face by a human being in the street because then they can see this person and they have an interaction. So this awareness creation that, that the pandemic has kind of forced all of upon all of us, I think is very important that we start that dialogue. Like you have an equity audit when you do new things in the company or in the government. And uh, this needs to be part of that, I think, to think about the unintended consequences of, of the design of some surfaces. Yeah. It really does sound like in the development of anything that might be loosely called a digital inclusion program really does have to be based on a connection with the end user and what it is going to mean for them in all the different ways that you've described, Ellen, which is probably a bit of a shame given that there are lots of people thinking if they hand out devices and establish internet connections, we're all going to be on the road to utopia. But it's uh, not that simple, it seems. No, it isn't. But I'm, I'm also, you know, kind of realistically optimistic. I think there is there you can see a movement of people talking, although we can see a little bit going back to this, the whole, you know, let's give everybody more data and access. But I do think there's like, especially in, the, you know, kind of the third sector and the education sector, people are aware of uh, healthcare that, you know, it is more complicated than that. And But there's also a lot of expertise, as we say, you know, there's this is not inequality and, and disadvantage and vulnerability are not new phenomena. And it's not like all the lessons that we've learned in the past are useless because now it's digital. So I think there's a lot of knowledge and expertise that we can build on. And this is not a problem that's going to go away within the next three to five years, right? This is something that requires an expertise and a multi-stakeholder involvement. And yes, it's not easy. It would be nice if you could just, you know, like a tech, <laughs> tech patch and then all the problems will be solved, but sadly yeah. no. Uh, yes, it's a bit like one of those ideas of a one pill that if you swallow it every day, it will solve all your health problems. But as with everything else, it's how we live and what we do that can have such a, a positive impact as well as sometimes a negative one. But it, it, it's just really interesting because we were recently talking to a theatre director, Andrew Keats, who's a gay man with um, HIV. And what came across in terms of supporting people in the LGBTQ plus community was the more that we could understand about their lives and their experiences, the more it wasn't just about trust, but the more we could be sensitive to all the different things that could have a positive or negative impact on their experience. And that is something they live with every day. So uh, what I'm understanding from our conversation, Ellen, is that we really need that level of nuance and understanding in our progress in the digital space and thinking about vulnerabilities and thinking about all the sort of casual interactions that could make something much more distressing or difficult for someone, even if ultimately, you know, with some digital skills and a better device, they potentially could also engage with things that, that would be very helpful to them as well. But that lived experience, that story of, of a person's life seems absolutely key to anything we're doing in health at the moment. Yeah, completely uh, back that up with also because of the research that we've been doing is very clear. <laughs> it's always yeah. reassuring when we can yeah. find a professor as esteemed as yourself who can back up what we think we're trying to do. So thank you for that. And I guess at this point, uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times and as did Sonia at the beginning, but for people who really want to immerse themselves in, in all of this complexity and challenge in, in the best sense that your book, The Digital Disconnect, will be available from Dare I say Amazon? It is, yeah. You can also buy it directly from Sage, which is the publisher. But yes, Amazon will provide. Okay. So uh, it sounds like if many of us are not able to, to do much in the way of travel, we can go on a journey in our minds and, and really understand this world that we're struggling with and somehow already immersed in. So, so thank you. 
We are pretty much at the end now of the, of the podcast, and, and we've found a way, <laughs> I don't know whether algorithmically driven at this point, of concluding the podcast. And that's to ask you, Ellen, that if we were about to enter yet another phase of lockdown, if you could take three prominent or famous people into that lockdown space with you, and that could be defined in terms of somewhere where there is enough physical space and you won't have to spend too long in the bathroom to, to do what you need, who would you take with you? So um, I think, you know, there would be some, uh, I do love reading and I would like to be transported into a different world. And uh, I, I, I love the kind of idea of traveling, not just to different places on this planet, but also different kind of universes. So I'm a big fan of Murikami, the Japanese author who tends to be able to do that for me. So, and I wonder, I can just imagine sitting and listening to the stories that are told um, and uh, transporting myself somewhere else. That would be fantastic. I guess the other thing that's really important in my life, I really love music. And I think one of the things I've missed the most in this lockdown is the inability to go out and, yeah. and, and go dancing, which is something that I, uh, I used to do quite a lot. Um, so I was thinking about this question, I guess, in terms of who would be there, who could uh, dance me through the lockdown. And since I'm uh, the, the, Latin, the Latin dance of it, I, I was like uh, kind of trying to figure out who would be the best one? Um, so I guess I should go with uh, Ricky Martin. You know, oh, okay. Sing and dance, uh, sing or dance our ways through. And I guess the other thing that is important in lockdowns, which is like one of these things that you have to do every day and that, you know, at a certain point you become a bit restricted in your creativity, or at least I am, is this idea of, of, of food and it's become to take a central role, right? It's the, often the only escape that we have. We could go to the supermarket. That was the only thing we could do. <laughs> and so I was thinking about uh, like a, a chef or somebody. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, I've never actually gone to her restaurants, but I've heard so much about it and also heard that she is she doesn't necessarily you know have people in her kitchen who are like trained in a professional way but they, she takes them and she has very lively kitchens and there's this chef called uh, Daniela Soto Ines it's like a kind of a Mexican very young chef who actually also was a, as a professional swimmer I think so I could okay. uh, use her I might do quite a lot of sports so I thought you know somebody who could combine the joy of physical activity with the joy of uh, culinary pleasure and uh, I would I would take somebody like that with me in lockdown so that, to get me through <laughs> the the space yeah I, as you notice I haven't mentioned any uh, academics and intellectuals because that would be really hard to pick Oh, well, or, or just very it. sensible. I, I think yeah. um, I, I mean, it's a bit nerve-threading there for me because I, I was hoping you weren't going to say Gordon Ramsay. I was trying no. to imagine him in there with uh, no, 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 Ricky that Martin. Would be not, um, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, obviously there's a strong Latin flavour there to, to how you're going to spend your time. I think what's also really important, and, and, and I really like the sort of idea of transporting yourself as well, because we've had some lovely examples, including one young man who just look at Google Maps and kind of imagine walking through different spaces as a way of, you know, escaping the frustrations of, of lockdown. But but I, th I think also, you know, just being able to do things that you enjoy, you can be worthy after lockdown and, you know, all, all the self-improvement that people were talking about early in that very first lockdown, you know, I think to replace that with just something enjoyable. We do allow you to take some media in. I mean, you, you, you mentioned your, your love of reading, but 
This comes from um, one of the very first people to be quarantined in the UK and how really, and this goes back to digital, one of the few things that wasn't incinerated was a smartphone or a tablet because they could be wiped clean. So they really have their use in COVID. A book, some music, uh, a film, TV series, recording of a theatre performance or a sporting event, anything that you'd like to take in with you as well that will also add to that more positive experience. Yeah, this is a really hard one um, because I assume you're not allowed to take uh, your phone in because you want to talk <laughs> to keep in touch with your family. Yeah, and it's, stuff like it's, that, think, you know? think more of MP3. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, uh, this again goes back, I guess, uh, I guess, to my, uh, to my, um, in a way, uh, love of, of music and uh, also kind of nostalgia or something, something that's accompanied me for a very long time. Um, I used to be a very uh, big fan, still am, but it's uh, not, not a teenager anymore, of, of Prince. And um, okay. and for some reason, the Under the Cherry Moon album has this kind of a particular resonance with me. So I, I think I would take that if I could take one object, you know, it's, it's a little bit Desert Island disc thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that is both because it gives me a connection with my past and then because, you know, like um, some of the some of the lyrics would be uh, kind of, you know, also still relevant and important for me today. So that could transport you in time as, as well as musically. Yeah, yeah. Although isn't there a slight risk with that choice that you might have flashbacks to the film? Um, yeah, although I, I you know, I, I actually haven't, uh, like, the film is not as important to me as the, as the actual, as the, music actual as the music itself, so yeah. Okay, well that'll give you and Ricky something to dance to as well. Yeah, um, exists. You want to break from the Latin rhythms. And then finally, we're going to let you have a luxury, which, given those that you have in there with you, might be also an interesting selection. I'm sure it'll be hard, though. I think you're somebody who probably has quite a few ideas. So so what would you take as a luxury? Yeah, I don't... I, I have a really hard time thinking about what actually a luxury is for me. Um, not so much about objects in that sense. I think um, this would be more something that might not seem like a... A luxury but i would definitely if i'm in lockdown i would need something like uh like actually for me the most luxurious thing that i do for myself is to have, have warm baths and, and mm. just relax and enjoy so i think that would be you know the kind of moment i would like a lot of the luxury for me is being outside as well and, and exploring but that's against the nature of the lockdown so that's not sadly possible but i think yeah that kind of space in which you can you know relax unwind. and pamper yourself unwind i think that would be a nice bath with enough space to to relax in and read my books in that uh, you know and listen to the music that uh, i'm allowed to take in i think that would be actually for me the ultimate luxury i don't think there's another specific object in terms of monetary value that would bring me more joy well i would even suggest it could be therapeutic given all the dancing with ricky martin you might, <laughs> you might need a, a muscle soak after a lot of that or, or actually ice cold baths are, are one of those things that help too apparently oh but, yeah no no not for we, me we, we, again we'll leave worthiness for after the lockdown yeah well, thank you so much, Ellen, for giving us your time today. I, I hope that anyone who listens to this will start to think in a more critical and in a more depth manner in relation to all of the initiatives that may, in a very positive way, be something of a reflex response to COVID. But actually, if we don't 
really sort of listen to those that we're trying to support and really help them co-create solutions with us, there are going to be unintended consequences, as, as you put it. So I think this is incredibly helpful. I hope people can immerse themselves further in your thinking and contact Sage or, dare I say, Amazon, and, and perhaps progress their own thinking in this space. And that I'm very keen, as you know, to include a lot of this thinking in the health space so that we can work together to, to improve someone's health and well-being, but not ever leave them with the feeling they're being coerced or forced in a direction they don't wish to go. So thank you very, very much. And I, I hope this really does reach a lot of people and helps them in their thinking. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. It was a pleasure.